0: Today, there are 2 million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martner. Now, this week's guest is someone I first met when I was on the board of trustees of the Franco American Center in Manchester, and I have been frequently asked when I will have her on the show. Dr. Catherine Harrington is a professor of French at Plymouth State University, where she has taught since 2010. She's the author of Writing the Nomadic Experience in French and Francophone Literature. She is a co founder of the Bienvenue au New Hampshire initiative and currently serves as the president of the American Council of. Quebec Studies and the president of the New Hampshire chapter of the American Association of Teachers of French. She's also one of the authors featured in the book *French All Around Us: French Language and Francophone Culture in the United States*. Kate, welcome to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast.
1: Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for having me on.
0: Sure. So let's start with your story. So, where are you from?
1: I grew up in Beverly, Massachusetts. Yeah, so it's a it's a city of about forty thousand people, and when I was growing up, it was pretty mixed, kind of middle class. And uh, I would say, you know, ethnic groups, lots of, uh, lots of Irish, lots of Italians, Franco-Americans, et cetera. And uh, yeah, and I actually grew up in the neighborhood that was in the shadow of a former shoe machinery mill. We called it the shoe. Uh, sure. we would, it was right behind my elementary school and we would ice skate on their pond, which is probably some polluted gross thing um, <laughs> that was Always kind of my, safe yeah. yeah and that was kind of my only um knowledge of what the shoe was
0: so you, you didn't grow up with any of this french language culture heritage any of that
1: not at all and i'm no one in my family speaks another language except for uh, maybe one aunt who speaks some french from college but uh yeah so it's just something <laughs> yeah i'm kind of the outlier in my family no, that's
0: awesome yeah so when did you learn french then
1: so I was lucky enough to have a great uh, middle school uh, French teacher. Um, so started t- learning French in seventh grade up through high school. I just loved it from the beginning. My teacher was Madame Levesque, and uh, she was actually Italian, but her husband was French Canadian. And um, yeah, and in college, I had a, I mean, sorry, in high school, had a wonderful French teacher who also taught Latin, which I did um, as well. And so it's just something that I loved. And in high school, we also had the opportunity to have a study um, exchange program with another high school in France just for two weeks. And so I had somebody and you know, I hosted someone at my house and then went and stayed there for two weeks and I was hooked. That was it. That's awesome. was like, and my family, you know, I was, you know, I brought up with the great family and we did lots of things, but we didn't um, travel abroad. That wasn't something that I was brought up with. So uh, my first taste of a foreign language and foreign country, and being in Paris and whatever. I was just like, this is amazing.
0: You yeah. told a real fun story in your chapter about you and a friend getting together in doing the whole looking at the back of the French book. Check it out the words. That's cool. Can you tell that story? Sorry, I laughed that. I thought that
1: was cool. So I wonder if she's uh still around. I'm sure she doesn't listen to uh French gaming podcast, but her <laughs> name was out, Gary. Dude. Yeah, yep. you never know. Uh yeah, we were both in love with this French class, and I, I think it's just there's something about when you're a kid and and this it almost feels like this like secret code or something, you know. And um, yeah, so we would when we got our first textbook, we I can I distinctly remember us. Um, we would go to the very last chapter in the book and we would try to pick out like a dialogue or something with like the hardest language in the book and then we would you know with our old tape recorder with the cassette we would record ourselves reading it and we had no idea what we were saying and and it was really fun to go back and listen to those later because it was
0: like, I bet. I
1: had no idea what I was saying um, <laughs> love that trying to you know get those uh words to come off my gonna fall off my tongue it was fun
0: that's awesome so what made you decide then that you were going to try to continue your education in French after after high school
1: Yeah, I uh, never, I always knew that I wanted to continue it's, it's strange because it was a passion for me very early on and yet, I think like a lot of students it was never really explained to me sort of what one could do with it those are air quotes around that. Um, I even much more today with the college students that I see but even back back in my day. Um, you know, it never, it wasn't a clear career path to what one would do with French. So whenever I would say to somebody, you know, that I loved French and that I was probably going to, it was probably going to be something I would study in college. And they would say, oh, do you want to be a French teacher? And I was I'd always answer, no way. I, I'm not going to do that. I want to do something more exciting than that. Right. I actually really loved the law and uh, I didn't follow you there, but I long had thought about going to law school. And in college I studied, I did a double major, um, in it was called government at my school, and French. And I did, you know, an internship with the public defender's office. And then um, after graduation from college, I worked for a law firm in Boston for a couple of years. And I worked in a bilingual law firm. And uh, as much as I find, I think I still think I could have enjoyed the law, right? But uh, I kind of had this revelation uh, during that job that there are tons of lawyers in the U.S. Um, and yet, there are so few people who speak another language. So I was like the only person in the law firm that spoke French. So wow. um, I dealt with all the mainly Haitian clients. I don't speak Creole, sure. but we could sure. we could communicate enough. Um, I also speak some Spanish, so that was helpful to me there. Um, so yeah, so it was one of those things that I it wasn't kind of till maybe three years post college, where I said, you know what? As much as like I think I could do, I could go to law school and do that. I think the thing that I have that's always been my passion that fewer people have is my love of languages and French in particular so I decided to go to law school Uh, sorry to to graduate school no that's cool and
0: I wanted to touch on also because you mentioned that couple week trip you took when you were in high school but you also took a pretty awesome experience when you were doing your undergrad college life for that year can you talk about that that sounds like just a crazy experience for if I was that age I would have been in heaven
1: Yeah, I did my undergraduate degree at St. Lawrence University, which is a a small liberal arts college in upstate New York. And what was really cool about that school and one of the reasons why I chose it is it had a real um, strong um, emphasis on global education. About, I think, 75 percent of students at St. Lawrence study abroad. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah, which is huge. I mean, yeah, for sure. The schools where I've taught at, it's, it's a huge number. And not only that, but the French program, it was a longstanding uh, study abroad program. It had been in place already probably for 30 years, I think, or 50 years, maybe when I was there. And it was a year-long program. And that is, unfortunately, uh, pretty rare these days that students go abroad for a full year. And it's mm-hmm. it's honestly just, that's really the, anybody who's, sta- who's gone abroad for that long knows that sort of those first um, so let's say semester, because I was in a college schedule that first semester, you're just really struggling through, right? And you're trying to find your way and you're trying to sure. communicate and everything feels really overwhelming for so long. And it's usually right around Christmas, January, that you just starts to click for you. And, and it's really the second semester where you start to feel comfortable and you really make huge huge gains in your language acquisition so and I was able to live we lived with the family we all had homestays and um, I had a number of core classes that were um, just with international students but um, then we also took a couple classes integrated within the the larger university which is just a huge eye-opening experience so different
0: no Uh, that's so cool yeah I'm pretty I mean I know it's fun because I did actually a semester in Ireland when I was in law school and just being able to take classes along with people studying to be lawyers in Ireland. Like you said, it was completely different. It was super neat. I can't even imagine with the whole other language trying to go to school with people in French. No, what, what town were you in?
1: I was in Rouen, which is in Normandy. Yeah, oh, yeah. so it, it's actually a great location because we're not far from Paris. So you could, if you wanted to do weekends in Paris, um, we weren't far... Not about an hour to the coast, and um, but the the Norman countryside is just gorgeous. So um, it's a really really cool place.
0: Yeah, I gotta tell people before I took a uh, one of those Viking river cruises once. <laughs> my family did from Paris out to Normandy and back, um, and that was my favorite stop. That town was amazing. It's like a medieval town. It, it was is so so cool.
1: Yeah, super cool, and it was really um, not. Is one of the few cities. It's pretty well. Um, preserved from, you know, so many places were bombed out in World War II and Hawaiian is still pretty, in pretty good shape.
0: Yeah, no, it still has a lot of that old architecture. Yeah, I'm super neat. Very, very cool. All right. So you decide then, you know, law's not going to happen. What was the next step then? You're like, you know what? I'm going down this road, pursuing this French. French is my real passion. Where'd you go from there?
1: At, right after college, before he went working a lot firm in Boston, I spent a year in South America. I spent a year in Ecuador. Um, a friend oh. of mine from yeah, a friend of mine from college, she was a Russian major, I was a French major, and we both had started just senior year, like, let's learn another language. So we let's started. go to Ecuador, sure, yes. Yeah, well, I took one <laughs> year beginning Spanish my senior year, and then uh, we were like, hey, let's go somewhere where we, we can learn it. And we didn't want to go to Europe because we both spent a year um, already. So... Uh, yeah, so I did that for eight months, and so my, my Spanish was was decent. It was it was pretty good. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, and uh, for some reason, it's like always stayed just a little bit out of reach for me. At least now that at that point, it was still I was a pretty good Spanish speaker, but French is like so ingrained in me. Sure. Um, but uh, so because I had that Spanish as well as the, the French, I was thinking about doing a degree in comparative literature, which is where you kind of choose two languages. But in the end, I ended up getting it's a long story, but I ended up getting <laughs> a scholar or like an, an offer to um, be a teaching assistant with that came with free tuition and a stipend um at Texas Tech University which cool. is yeah actually hadn't even applied there but uh, <laughs> it's yeah so the the chair of the language department there used to be at Penn State they had accepted me but they didn't have funding for me Caught in touch with this buddy and so anyway so i went sight unseen to Lubbock Texas for 2 years
0: that's amazing big yeah. football program
1: Yep. Yep. And I have, you know, I've lived at that point, I had lived in France for a year and in Ecuador. No, uh, yep. And I had never felt more foreign than I did when I lived in, <laughs> but you know, a great place. And it was a great launch pad for my career. So, um, met some great people who I still very much am in touch with today. Um, and then from there, I applied for PhD programs and I ultimately ended up choosing to go to Brown. And Ooh. so that's where I did my doctorate. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. It's funny you say that because. My sister's first job uh, out of her undergrad was in uh, Fort Worth, Texas. We used to talk about it all the time. Like, even when, when I was in Ireland, my cultural adjustment was way less than hers was going <laughs> down to Fort Worth.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
0: Very, very cool. So, I have a question. So, you have all this background now, you're learning French in various different places. You now get a PhD, expert pursuing your passion in French literature. How much of this? study was about Quebec versus how much of this was about France?
1: Yeah, good question. So I was coursework-wise, I had zero uh, classes on Quebec, North American, French, nothing. That was never an option to me, um, undergrad, master's, or PhD. So that's three programs. Um, I did for my master's program, uh, our last semester, we Uh, Could do a master's thesis, and I wanted to learn about Quebec, and so I ended up um, writing a thesis on Gabrielle Roy, on her literature and sort of the feminist and nationalist elements of her literature. So, and I worked with my advisor, who was actually Algerian. So I I knew a lot more about North North African uh, French communities than I did about North American, right? Um, And it's funny because both my master's uh, thesis advisor, my, my advisor in my master's program and my dissertation advisor, both are, are Algerian. Oh, wow. um, yeah. So, which is really cool. And I'm very sure. interested in, in that part of the world. I've never traveled there, but I would love to someday. Yeah. So the only Quebec stuff that I did was kind of on my own initiative, on my own ind- independent research. And that advisor, he was excited about me doing that and pursuing that, but it wasn't anything that he knew much about so yeah and so this is something that I've been very uh cognizant of now that I'm a French professor and thinking about you know what was available to me and what I think students should be learning in a French curriculum
0: and why you, I mean it seems kind of crazy I mean I guess you can almost understand Texas Tech but going to school in upstate New York and going to school in Rhode Island plenty of influence of Quebec culture heritage in those places how is it why do you think that there was not more offerings for you to learn about the Quebec side.
1: So for the, at St. Lawrence, um, my undergrad, you know, we were so close to the Canadian border. Right. That, I mean, we went, there would be weekend trips. You could go to Montreal for the day and- I'm
0: sure there were.
1: Go yeah. to the bars on St. Cat's Street. You know, yes, there was a lot of that. We of were course. really close to Ottawa. Um, I had one professor. I think he had some background in Quebec West stuff, but there was never a specific course on it. So he might bring it into like a language class, but- sure. Um, I never really learned anything about it and then so for that one I really don't know I think it's because French that French program was small like a lot of colleges are and you really are um, you build your program kind of around who the faculty are and what their specialty is what their interest is and so you'll see places where you know people are Totally into like Caribbean literature or, or uh, Maghrebian or, you know, whatever it is, that's their thing. And so maybe that'll be the kind of courses that are offered because that's what that faculty member is, is specializing. Um as far as Brown, that one is like a little still a little bit of a mystery to me because it's it's a big program. There's a fair amount of faculty members there. Great, great French program. I mean, I had a wonderful experience there. I don't know if I don't think I told the story in the book, but when i some jumping ahead here in my mind. no bio. it's cool <laughs> <laughs> my first um teaching uh gig was in fort kent maine i'm sure we'll talk about that but yes. uh, one of my colleagues there, who was, it's a very, very small school. So, one colleague, he was a math professor, right? Nice. Uh, Roger Roy. And, um, but he, Roger Roy, but, you know, sure. and, and when I first <laughs> met Roger, when, when I showed up there and he said, Oh, I heard you coming from Rhode Island. He said, I'm from Rhode Island. I said, Oh, cool. Whereabouts? He said, Pawtucket. I said, No way. That's right, you know, right next to Providence. And I said, Oh, that's where my dis- dissertation advisor lives, actually in Pawtucket. And um, he told me about how he grew up. In a, going to a, um, a French Canadian school and you know there was a French Canadian parish and he went to the parish school it was a bilingual school and he talked about how his parents made it very clear that he was not allowed to go to any of the Irish you know yep. Friday you know Saturday night dances or whatever that you know they needed to to bolster the French Canadian one absolutely and so he lived in this you know in this very French and he was, so when I was, I don't know how old he is now, but mm, he might be close to 80 at this point. Um, I think he was in his 60s when I knew him uh, at Fort Kent, but I remember going, the next time that I saw my dissertation advisor, when I was visiting Providence, I said, oh, this is so funny, but this guy that I, that I work with, he's not a French professor, he's a math professor, but he speaks French. Yeah. Um, he grew up in Pawtucket, and in, in this French-Canadian environment, and he went to a French, you know, an immersion school, and French parish, and my advisor just kind of looked at me like, "Huh, hmm, interesting." And like that was it. Oh, it was wow. like the end of conversation. And it's like he didn't. I don't know. There was sort of no interest there, and I, I was really confused by this. So it's this thing where I think research one institutions where they have graduate programs. I mean, people are so focused on their very specific research, you know, area, and uh, I don't know. Maybe they just don't have time or what, but. It seems like the trends in French education as far in at the like PhD level um, are really people are definitely interested in La Francophonie sure. l- larger outside of France, but the more trendy things are Caribbean or African lit. I don't know why. Yeah. I mean North I mean, American French is not trendy and cool, but
0: I mean, which I understand, but I mean, especially Brown, because I've never been to I don't know upstate New York at all, but my sister went to Providence College, so I'm at least familiar with that town and you you could have just gone in your car driven 10 minutes and you could have had entire conversations in french with people about french literature it would just would have been the quebec french and yeah. i think that's kind of crazy that that's wasn't more a part of that experience but no yeah. that's cool that is not so how did you end up before kent we talked about that
1: yeah so um so Unfortunately, although French is my passion and wanting to be a college French professor was the thing that I had decided I wanted to do. It's a very limited job market and much more so now. Um, But even when I was finishing up, I was uh, 2004, not a lot of jobs out there. And so first round first time around, I didn't get a job. Normally there's like a cycle where you go to this conference and I had some interviews, but nothing came through. And then the Fort Kent job came up kind of after the cycle was over. And so I applied for it. And I remember reading the description of it with my husband, my husband's from France and yeah. And he was like, wow, that sounds, they described it as a bilingual bicultural community. And he was like, that's super cool. We need to, this is cool. Let's go for this. And, and so I was, This is something I knew nothing about. I literally did not know um, that there were French speakers in Maine. Anyway, so yeah, applied for that job and got it and we decided to move up there and we lived there for six years. And yeah, it's an amazing place.
0: Yeah, for those who may not be familiar, um, where is Fort Kent? And what was the, I guess, what was the reality you saw when you got there versus what you were told it was going to be before you showed up?
1: So I have very little understanding of anything i mean i had been to portland i had been to booth bay harbor it, you know i'd been to sort of coastal maine um and uh you know port Kent is you drive to Bangor which is already pretty far and then there you is. get on route 11 and you drive for three and a half hours <laughs> north of Bangor maine yeah and uh you know and because of that it's it's such a neat place, but it is, it's is—it's almost like an island community in some ways because wow. they are so isolated and there's not a whole lot between Bangor and the St. John Valley. So um, the valley has a really distinct culture. It's a really neat place, but it's just, it's so far off the beaten track that, you know, it really doesn't have a lot of tourism. Sure. Um, there's not a lot of people just, you know, moving in just because they decide to. It's a lot of families who've been there for generations. Yeah. And the week, the weekend that we went up to go look for a place to live, it was in June and we drove up and that weekend, I've never, I had never seen a moose in my life. And we saw, <laughs> we saw, and that one weekend we saw 13 moose.
0: 13 moose. No, we it were like, enough for where are we right going? Now? It yep. was like,
1: yeah, it's. I'm crazy. done.
0: Thanks. It's been it's been nice, but there's <laughs> be a moose for me. Wow, that's nuts.
1: Yeah, yeah. Around here, people always want to see a moose, and they try to find one. And up there, it's like you do not want to see one, right? Because
0: no, I have zero interest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll look at pictures. Yeah. No thanks. No, that is very very cool. I mean, I've Mike and I have talked about it for a long time. Because yeah, Doctor Patrick McQua is up there now, so we yeah. owe him a trip up to to check out 4K. We, we promised if we would, he's going to be listening to this. So I'm sure he's going to hold that against me, sure. <laughs> but um, one of the things you mentioned is the whole topic that definitely rang true for me when I was reading it, the conversation between the Valley French and the Parisian French. What was that conversation like? Because um, it does seem similar to a lot of things that I've heard on this podcast before.
1: Yeah. And so, okay, so here I am, somebody who's just done three degrees in French, right? Right. And, um, you know, I've lived in France at this point for three years of my life. I spent two years during my PhD program also in France. So, you know, consider myself a near native speaker of French. I go to sure. the St. Juan Valley where I know that, you know, New Brunswick is just next door and Quebec is right next door to that. And- sure. So I know that there's a Canadian influencer, but I didn't actually realize how many people in the town of Fort Kent are French speakers themselves. So I can remember walking around the campus for the first, not even just the campus, but we, we ended up buying a, a house there and, and people, I, you've never lived in a more friendly place in your well, awesome. Oh, I, I, I always, t- I just, the first week we were there, we called them slow drive-bys. <laughs> people, would,
0: okay.
1: like people knew like that there was a new couple moving into this house. And oh, so wow. people would like, drive by our street, slow down. And they would just say, welcome to Fort Ken, And they keep driving. And then literally probably within the first six months we lived there we I felt like I knew everyone in the whole town I mean it just it <laughs> amazing. Cool. yeah a really really neat place and the fact that I was the French professor I think that helps, right didn't hurt. sure yeah people really wanted someone who was there to promote and support French but when I would meet people so either on campus or um you know neighbors or whatever and and uh people would tell me that they said oh you're the the French professor like, oh yeah, I'm French too. I speak French. And then they'll say, oh, but you know, I, I speak Valley French. I don't speak, I'm not, I don't speak Parisian French. And I would always kind of be like, I don't speak Parisian French. I right. Normandy and Lyon. I don't really have Parisian French, but okay. Um, and then my, my husband is from France. And so then I would say, oh, you know, pierre is French. And they'd say, oh, Francais de France. And you know, so <laughs> sure, it's like yeah. different, right? Everybody's got yeah. like their own different kind of roles. But I can remember the first day walking around the campus, I'd been hired and I was getting like the real tour now that I wasn't just an interviewee, but I was, you know, the people I needed to meet. And the registrar at the time, Don Raymond. I think he's retired by now. Great guy. Um, he, I remember he was so friendly and so excited to meet me and he went on and on and on and on to me in French. And I was just sitting there like, uh, I didn't really <laughs> understand what he was saying. Sure. I mean, he spoke so quickly and his accent was unlike anything I had heard before, you know, similar to, to Quebec French, but like its own different mm-hmm. kind of feel. And, uh, I can remember thinking, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? I'm a total fraud. You know, here I am thinking like, I have a PhD in French and like, I can't understand what this guy is saying, but you know, it didn't take long, right? It's one of these things. And people say this all the time when I tell them that I you know, teach a, teach courses on Quebec or I'm bringing students to Quebec or whatever. And then they'll say, oh, you know, I I have some high school French, but I went out to Canada. I couldn't understand a word they were saying, you know, and, uh, that's, that's now the thing that really gets to me. Right. Um, but it's really just a question of, of just training your ear. I mean, if you were to go to Scotland, uh, like I would have a hard time understanding people for, for a few days. And then I, then I'd figure it out. It's the same language. Right.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny. We, I, I had been to Scotland. My dad and my my uncle, we we had a, ran into a bartender from Glasgow. I had zero idea between the three of us what he was saying. Like <laughs> he was definitely talking to us in English. We just none of us could understand. We literally just had a point to what we wanted because our communication <laughs> was bad. But no, I get that. But I'm curious now though because I know when I'm, I even run into it here, and I even come with like even with family members, where they talk about you know the French we spoke they spoke growing up versus the, as you say, Parisian French. A lot of times, even amongst them, they've been told for so long that it's a lesser French, that they almost see it that way. That like, if somebody comes in speaking and some, obviously not everyone does, like my dad never bought into this, but there's plenty of people who do absolutely think that if somebody comes in speaking the Parisian French, that it's like a proper French. So is that similar or different? Is that the same thing you saw up there?
1: Yeah, oh for sure there's almost like this inferiority complex when people hear that you're here to be the French teacher and they also right. had often encountered French teachers from elsewhere who had this really strict way of teaching and wanted you to speak French in a specific way with a specific accent. I I think that that's less so now, but definitely people have heard that and and I'll be honest, you know, any if you talk to a Quebecois person who's gone to France, they might say the same thing. They might've been mocked in the street for their Quebecois accent. I mean, it's, it's pretty pathetic. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, to me, if somebody feels that their French is inferior and if they got that from a French teacher, like that's just such a huge fail for French education. That's just so wrong. And, you know, I think that things have changed a lot. We talk a lot about um, heritage language learners now so sure. you know in lots of languages mostly Spanish but we've got plenty of other languages in the U.S. that you know with students in that in that category and these people are resource they're they're this is like a wonderful thing that we have in our country that we have people who have already coming to school with another language with two languages right right that we really need to be supporting that and helping them develop that and and becoming literate in that language if it's only a spoken language at home I do think that we don't give teachers enough training on on how to to incorporate you know multiple kinds of backgrounds in the classroom I think it was easier for people to just say this is the way that we speak French there's one way to do it and you know it's kind of sad not to leave room for a diversity of of you know expressions and accents and you know
0: yeah yeah, for sure. I mean, I've, t- I've told it before. Like when my parents were even here in Manchester, Manchester Central, they were told to sit, and them and all the other French Canadian kids were told to sit on one side of the classroom in their French class so that their French wouldn't pollute the others who are trying to learn the correct French. Wow. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, like you mentioned that story about France, it's kind of another crazy thing. So my mom went to to, to France with a friend of hers, and they were checking into the hotel, and the person behind them in line just happened to be from Montreal, but that person didn't speak any English. And the person from France pretended as though she could not really, my mom thinks she was pretending, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that she couldn't understand the person's French at all from Montreal. So, yeah. she ref- so she refuses to talk to her in French. So what had to happen was that person, the person from France at the hotel desk would speak to my mom in English. My mom would then speak to this person from Montreal in French. who talked to my mom back in the French who spoke in Montreal, who then spoke back in English. I mean, just an insane, I don't know, it seems kind of crazy to me. Yeah,
1: pretty close-minded if you really think that, you know, you couldn't make an effort to try to understand, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. (laughs) I do want to talk about a course that was mentioned in the chapter, actually, about French for heritage speakers. I think that's kind of cool. So first of all, what is a French heritage speaker and what was this course about?
1: Right. So this exists for a lot of other languages. It's pretty rare in French and the U S um, but so someone whose home language is French. So if they grew up learning French with their parents um, and, you know, often you hear, you know, sometimes kids, you know, before age five, that was the only language that they heard right until they went to school. Um, and so if they continue to speak it at home, they've got, they've got the spoken French. So my son, for instance, is a, is I consider him a French heritage Um, learner and yeah but never had the chance to study it formally so when you get someone into your classroom in that in that situation like my son going into high school this year you know they don't really have the grammar writing literacy you know Um, so that's they come with this whole you know they can speak it they know it by ear Um, so you see a lot of things you know writing things the way that they sound, how you know, how we think that they would be spelled and whatnot. So it, it can be a little bit challenging to kind of find that that right space um, to help them kind of build off of the great foundation that they have. And it can be overwhelming and intimidating for the other students in the room who are learning it as, you know, modeling speakers. And so um, this, you know, kid walks in and he speaks French great, but then again, these other students can conjugate verbs and they can write complete sentence and all that so um, in an ideal world like um, when I was at Fort Kent we were able to offer a class specific just to those students and so um, which is wonderful because from day one you can speak entirely in French and then little by little you know you you work on I did a lot through reading, reading short texts and having them kind of write you know um, summaries of things or giving presentations on things and and trying to you know, they they ended up having this sort of everyone kind of had their own path of what they the gaps that they needed to fill in with French. Um, so it kind of became like a writing your own kind of individual learning plan. But one thing that when I was in Fort Kent, I had a I had a mentor. Um, his name is Gil Albert, and he was someone who is a great leader in the community for French. He was the director of a French immersion program that um, they had at Madawaska for many years. Gil was in his kind of retirement part of his job when I met him. And so he was teaching at, you know, at University of Maine, Kent and the education department. And so he really helped me with a lot of um, materials and Ooh. he had actually created some anyway. And, but he had also um, introduced me to Gregor Chabot and his Ooh. writing yeah. Yeah. And so I met him pretty early on when I was, I think it was like my first year teaching. There was some sort of a Franco American conference. I think it was held at Colby. And there were different sort of artists and you know writers and whatnot. And so I met Greg then and we continued to have a you know a friendship over the years. I he's just one of my most favorite people in the world. Um, and his writing is fabulous. And he um, so he, one of his books on Jacques Cartier Errant is uh, I don't know if you know it. No. So, oh God, Jess, you got to read it. So it's, a, <laughs> it's a play that's written. Um, it's, it's bilingual and it's takes place in Manchester. And the idea okay. is that Jacques Cartier uh, shows up in, you know, I think it was written in like the eighties. So maybe in like in 1970s Manchester and he shows and he thinks he's in Nouvelle France and he finds out that he's in New England right and so so it's a conversation between Jacques Cartier and some local mill workers who are at a bar in Manchester that's awesome and it's just fabulous and so I, I would use that play often and we would read aloud and um, what was so fun for the students is that, you know, it was written in a language the way that they spoke it and they sure. could understand it, right? So, and he ended up, um, Greg, Greg uh, ended up coming up with his troupe and doing because his um, mother was from Santa Gat, which is in the North, uh, which is in the St. John Valley. Um, he grew up in Waterville, but so he loved to come up to the valley.
0: Sure. And,
1: So he would come up with his theater troupe and um, put on some plays. And it's one of these things that would really speak to people who had this French at home. He really, you know, he spoke, he's someone who had like multiple registers of French, right? but wrote on, you know, the French, the sort of spoken French that he grew up with. And um, and that was something that was really empowering, I think, for heritage speakers to be able to read something in a language that sounded familiar to them.
0: That's so cool. It's fun. I I remember before I went to Quebec. I remember thinking, how is it possible that you speak a language fluently and have no idea how to write it? Like that just did not make sense to me as a mono, you know, one language person. Like I didn't get it until I went up there, and all of a sudden, all these phrases that like my grandmother would say that I'd heard my entire life, when I saw them written, I had no idea what they were. Or (laughs) it came, it would have came time to write it. I have no idea how you write imitzi. I have no clue how to write any of that. Right. but yeah, it's, it was kind of, I mean, it's just a tiny slip, but at least I understood how that could possibly happen. But Yeah, no, it's, it's fun cool. when
1: people can finally figure out how to connect those yeah. dots, right?
0: Yeah, it's, I'm glad you mentioned Regoir Chabot. That's cool. We, we had, I talked to him quite a few times. We just never got the schedule where uh. we could have him on the podcast. It was a bummer, but super, super interesting guy. Just, I mean, we just talked and he was hilarious just to chat with he was hilarious. a super funny guy
1: so yeah. warm and so wonderful yeah yeah He's a big at
0: least I, at least I got started the podcast early enough to be able to meet him so that was cool I, that I definitely appreciate it but how'd you end up then leaving 4k how do we end up in New Hampshire
1: <laughs> right so we were in working for six years um i just you know it's one of those places it will always hold such a special place in my heart it's um people are amazing we've kept a lot of friends from there uh, both of our children were born there um yeah. and so but you know it was my parents we're living in Massachusetts, still in Beverly, but um, have now retired and up in New Hampshire. And it was an eight hour drive to see family and yeah. already my husband's family's, you know, on another continent. So sure. it just, it became really tough um, once we had little kids. And we kind of wanted to be able to see family more frequently. So a position came open. Um, I actually didn't like go on a big job search, but I just Very happened cool. to see that there was a French position open at the at uh, Plymouth State University, which happens to be 12 miles from where my parents had built their retirement home.
0: Very nice.
1: So I applied for it and, uh, and, and got it. So yeah, so that was in 2010, we moved here.
0: And what does the French program look like at Plymouth State University,
1: Plymouth is a small regional comprehensive public university, sure. and uh, we've got about four thousand undergraduate students. When I started here, we had a Department of Languages and Linguistics. Um, I was I replaced the one and only French professor. There were um, at the time there were three full time Spanish professors, okay. um, and a professor of um, linguistics and TESOL, the Teaching of English to Speakers of Other Languages, and then we had some um, part time. Teachers who taught uh Mandarin, sign language, Italian, German. So that was the that was 12 years ago. Fast forward to today, uh, we no longer have a language department. Um, our university has been reorganized around interdisciplinary clusters, which is the brainchild of our um president who has been here maybe seven years. It's a it's the concept is interesting. So we kind of take uh instead of having Sort of these silos of disciplines. The idea is to really like force groups together uh, around common interests and to create kind of new curriculum and interdisciplinary kind of projects and ideas. So I ended up splitting off with Spanish. Uh, just oh, wow. Because, yeah, it's kind of weird. So Spanish wanted to go with um, the criminal justice. Uh, program in justice and security. And I just didn't feel like I wanted that label um, for our French. And I had been working with the tourism industry. So I am in the tourism environment and sustainable societies uh, cluster. That makes and, a lot
0: of sense.
1: Yeah. And to be honest, it's, you know, it's been a little strange at times to not have a language department. And, um, I'm still very close with it right now. There's just one other Spanish professor left um, and he and I work, we work well together on a number of different things, but, but I have really made inroads with other disciplines such as anthropology and geography and environmental studies and um, sociology and political science. And so sure. I'm kind of a social science person as well. So that kind of suits me, but it's also been really great to have, french language and Quebec on the minds of these colleagues who otherwise would never have thought about languages um so it's led to some really fruitful um projects and collaborations and so i don't regret it at, at all it's just it's a little odd especially i mean i feel like most of my colleagues at other colleges when they hear that i don't have a language department they're like what right. the heck you know sure. it is what it is so
0: yeah no it, it, i mean one of my soapbox issues is i still feel that, uh, up you know, Northern New England, New Hampshire specifically here, we're leaving money on the table all over the place because we do not promote the French language nearly enough when we have an entire, you know, province of people who we could easily, you know, host for all kinds of various things in New Hampshire if we took our language education more seriously here. I think we could learn a lot from what happens in uh, Louisiana, honestly, it's insane to me that more tourists go from Quebec to Louisiana than do to New Hampshire. How is that even possible? I mean, I mean my geography is not great, but it seems we're a lot, lot closer than Louisiana is. But that's a big frustrator for me. But anyway, maybe this is a good transition. Tell us about the Bienvenue on New Hampshire projects. I think it's very cool.
1: Sure. So um, so when I moved here from New Hampshire, I moved to New Hampshire from Maine, I, you know, I'd had in mind like I'd been in this bilingual, bicultural border community mm-hmm. where everyone was very aware of multiple languages, right? And so there were a lot of signs and, and stores and you know businesses that said "en parle français ici."
0: Right. Um, it,
1: was, it was very visible, right? That because um, a lot of people there speak French, so you know, they would want Canadian visitors and customers to know where they could be served in French. And, you know, having spent a lot of time in the White Mountains region, I grew up skiing up this way. And, um, you know, it, you see a ton of Quebecois plates on Route 93. I mean, that's so that was very weird, uh, apparent to me when I moved here. But what was strange is that like moving to this town, there's absolutely no visibility of French anywhere. And And so I really thought like this was an opportunity for my students, especially, um, to to learn to be able to speak French for authentic purposes and to have opportunities to use their language skills, you know, in the community and in the business community. Forget when it was exactly, but I went to Burlington, Vermont, for a conference and was noticing what they do in Burlington. Um, they have downtown on Church Street. They have a kiosk that's kind of like has French language materials and maps, and it's staffed mm-hmm. by a French speaker because they very much, you know, are aware of. The lots of visitors that they have coming over from Quebec. Sure, I think it's a little bit different. I, I think about these things a lot and why things are so different here in New Hampshire. But you know, Vermont has their biggest city in the north of the state, right? And so there's a lot of people coming to Burlington because it's a big place and there's lots to do there, and so it's a great mm-hmm. place to visit. And so they have a little bit, you know, the resources are, are more centralized and and um, more well, you know, better developed. New Hampshire is a little bit different. Um, on the one hand, 99% of the border crossings that come from Canada into New Hampshire do not come from Canada. They cross over in Vermont, right? right. They go through Derby yep. Line. We do have one border crossing in New Hampshire, but it's teeny tiny. Right. Um, so I think we're almost like secondhand, right? And and so it's a little bit less obvious, I think, to some people, even though we, are, we do a share a border with Quebec, it's right. not a frequented border. Um, so that makes things a little bit different. But, um, so anyway, so I became, I, uh, became interested in sort of trying to do something in the community. I started with students and with a student project and there was someone who was running the local chamber of commerce and I talked to her about it. And she said, you know what, we, we published this yearly kind of directory of businesses and stuff in the area. What if we did a bilingual version? And I'm like, I said, great. So I took that on as a semester long project with, with a class. And we published it and it was like in all the welcome centers in the area. And it was really cool. It was great for students to be able to see like they did this work and now they can see it out there. And so that kind of led to this idea that there was so many more opportunities to do that type of work. So I was put in touch with a couple of people who are sort of like-minded, you know, in this thinking and um, Bino La Montagne is the main one. So he works um, in economic development for the state of New Hampshire and he works uh, recruiting Quebec. You know, Quebecois companies to come settle in New Hampshire, and he's a French speaker, and sure. and, um, and so uh, Bino and I started talking, and then the other person is Chuck Henderson, who is um, he works for Senator Jean Shaheen. He is the the director of special projects for the North Country. Cool. So, yeah, he's based in North Conway, and um, so the three of us kind of became this this core group around this idea, and we just started to think about like what could we do to take this like little idea from my French class and kind of get it- <laughs> yeah. Sure um further out and so we did a number of things but the kind of the main thing that we do is sort of french language um workshops and cultural literacy so just uh, i created um a couple of workshops for different industries mainly for tourism and m- one of the biggest things around here is hiking
0: sure
1: so you know we li- i live right in the middle of the white mountains and we have 48, you know, 4,000 footers, and Quebec does not have big peaks like that. And yet, it's very, very active, you know, population of Absolutely. people, and so a lot of them come down here for hiking. The Appalachian Mountain Club and New Hampshire Fish and Game and the White Mountain National Forest. These are all, you know, organizations that uh, their main um, focus is on safety. Um, so, for instance, if somebody tries to hike Mount Washington and their flip-flops and doesn't bring enough water or whatever. And then they end up having to get rescued off the thing. Like this is a major resources, right? That needs That's to be had.
0: Very, very expensive, yes. So,
1: yeah, so that was kind of Chuck's thought from the beginning was, was that, you know, one of the best uses for bringing French language, you know, services here would be for safety purposes. So we kind of started with that industry. And so I've given a number of workshops over the years to those, to those groups people who like manage the huts and for amc or um, frontline kind of tourism you know workers and just giving them an idea of like who's coming here you know or what just kind of giving them an overview of like what are francophone populations so it's not just quebec right french canadians Mm -hmm. um how many of them come a year how much money that represents for our state and then i always try to kind of make that connection with like you know, the, the huge amount of immigration that came from Canada to our state, you know, from right. the mid-19th to early 20th century, and and how many people here have French-Canadian heritage. So making a connection and an effort with this population of people is not some obscure idea, right? It's not like country somewhere else. No, right, course, you know, yeah. I mean, this is a very natural connection that we have. But as you've mentioned before, or like the U S is not like, we don't do a great job with promoting and prioritizing language education. So we don't have a lot of people who are really comfortable, you know, bilingual speakers, what we often do. So I, we kind of give an overview of like, you know, what this, what this population is, why it's important, why we should care and why we should make a bigger effort. And then we talk about just like the simple things that people can do in their businesses or or organizations just to make people feel welcomed and just to acknowledge, right, that they're not, that we have this whole population from another country whose speak, whose native language is a different one than English coming to our area. Um, We should just at least like put it out there. Bienvenue. Like we're happy that you're here. And it's such a like simple idea and yet it's not done enough. So yeah. And we always would, I would always end with a, like a, just a simple language uh, lesson to give people some greetings and simple things that they can use. And they leave with a little cheat sheet kind of depending on what their industry was. And what I've found over the years is, like, what you need to do in a room is, like, figure out who who are your champions for this cause. Because inevitably, if someone is signing up to come to a workshop about French language for tourism, they probably have some connection to that. Either they studied it in high school, right. they, they have MMA from, you know, <laughs> Canadian, like... And, and, and inevitably, we would find someone in the room and say, yeah, you know, I have French Canadian heritage, or I studied French or whatever. And so it's like enabling and empowering those people to say, you know what, then you should be the one in your organization that wears a little pin that says, je parle français, or sure. you, you're the one who greets people. So um, yeah, so that's about, about the gist of it
0: No, and I think that's so cool. I mean, for me, it's always been frustrating because I mean, you, you mentioned you have to go through, you know, Vermont, most people go through Vermont, but I mean, I could leave here being my house being, I don't know, Sherbrooke in three hours, or I, I would leave Quebec City even, like seven in the morning, I'd be home in time for lunch. Like, we're still very, very close. I, and I always think we got hundred million hotels going up in Manchester right now. We got new restaurants opening all the time down here. If we just had an option where we could tell these, you know, the, the our friends up north of the border that if you come to this hotel, there will be somebody there who can talk to you in French. If you show up at this bar, there will be somebody there who can talk to you in French. I think that would go such a long way. And I think we're just missing an opportunity to do, I, just, I mean, I get on my soapbox, but I dealt cards at a casino and the Seacoast ones. And just the difference it made when I'm counting out their blackjack to them in French numbers was huge. Like I can't even think like, if we just could, and that doesn't yeah. seem like a giant sacrifice to me to have a couple places that could do that, considering we have, 100 million options down here in Manchester.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, I, I'll be honest, having worked in like the tourism industry, it, I realize there are a lot of it's complicated, right? So sure. it's an industry where there's a ton of turnover employee wise. Sure. So you've got that. We had a grant with the Northern Borders Regional Commission that allowed us to, to have staff, and we, um, we created, we did a ton of translations for like 36 different. Dis- distinct businesses for in 11 different towns we were working just in the northern three counties co grafton and, and sullivan but even like all the time that you spend putting into the, a translation of a menu for instance yeah. it's like, i mean it's it, the, the minute somebody wants to update their menu what are they going to do if they have nobody on their staff who speaks french to do that work right sure. um just, stuff just changes so quickly yeah. and so but i think what you're saying you know is like to, even just and that's where we have like we have these stickers that you can put it, like windows clings that, that say bienvenue, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. And I think just having some sort of visible symbol. And then if there's someone in, in that business that can speak some French, that seems to be just, you know, like such a no brainer of an idea. And I think that's simple enough to do. Um, some things that require a lot of resources are hard to keep up with. So we feel like a lot of the projects that we did, we were really proud of them at the time. And then they just sort of like, if you're not updating things all the time, then they they become sure. obsolete.
0: Yeah, no, I get it. I guess, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know this industry, but it just seems to me that if you're going to have, you know, we there's like four hotels within walking distance of where I'm talking to you right now that were built since COVID started. Wow. In Manchester. And there's new stuff going up all the time. And if only just there's one place that just... Offered that one service, I think it would be huge. I think just yeah. an opportunity, but
1: yeah, yeah, whatnot. I agree. I mean, I would love for New Hampshire to see itself as a border state, right. you know, and that that and this is a resource that we have that other states don't have, and you know.
0: All right, I think we're on the same page there. <laughs> I do want to back up though, because I did mention a couple of things in your bio that I want to talk about. Writing the nomadic experience <laughs> in French in francophone literature. What what is this about?
1: Um, so this is a book that I published based on my dissertation research. Um, so I wanted to, I ended up uh, becoming really, when I was, I wanted to work on contemporary literature. And although, you know, I really like French writers, the, the people that I was sort of drawn to were writers who are shared between more than one country and more than one language. Oh, so you can kind of, yeah. Sure, maybe, that
0: maybe works.
1: Yeah. Personal connection there. <laughs> um, the first one that kind of got me on that was uh his name is um l'eclésio is his last name gmg l'eclésio and he's a very very prolific writer he won the Nobel prize in literature like maybe 2010 or so but i was writing about him before that um he's he's like published by gallimard which is like the traditional french publisher of you know of of all the legit literature in france and um, but when you read his stuff, it's none of it is really just about France. All his sort of uh, characters are really, you know, they're uh, immigrants or they're migrants or they're refugees or, or he's in another country or and, and he himself um, has lived in Mexico and um, Morocco and the U.S. And, you know, so I, I was just really interested in sort of how what that kind of identity, how that is um translated in, into, into literature and so I worked on um, four different authors cool. um, two, two who are kind of Canada France based Nancy Houston is one and um, Regine Robin is another and then I worked on uh, two uh, another uh, Nina Buhari who's Algerian but lives in France so
0: hi yeah. very cool definitely different that's awesome all right, what then? What is the American Council of Quebec Studies? <laughs> really, just going
1: through my CV, aren't you? I have
0: to. I gotta make sure that I check some of these boxes. Just cover all bases. I, well, I, th- I find it pretty interesting. Like these are definitely things that I did not know about. Cool. I mean, I'm from Manchester. My parents grew up speaking French in the house. I've been doing this podcast for a couple of years, but it was in the within the past probably two months that I even realized this organization was a thing. So what what is this organization?
1: The ACQS is um, an academic organization that um, it's sort of the one, there's a couple of organizations in the U.S. that are, so there's AXIS, which is for Canadian studies in the U.S. and then ACQS is Quebec studies in the U.S. So it's, uh, it brings together academics um, both from the U.S. and Canada, and and some outside as well, but who um, specialize in, in Quebecois, um, either literature, linguistics, history, um, social sciences, politics, things like that. Um, and we run a biennial conference, and uh, we generally have about <clears throat> maybe 100 and. 120 or so scholars, I would say, who who attend these Mm -hmm. conferences. Yeah, so um, it's just a wonderful group of people, very, very supportive, and I originally got, was introduced to it by a colleague, Mark Richard, who, um, he was a colleague Mm -hmm. of mine at Fort Kent, um, and he has been a member for a long time, and he and I both are on the board now and, and have been for a while so um yeah it's just it's uh it's a wonderful group susan Panette has um been on the board as well and nice. you know lots of the people so it's uh
0: yeah it's very cool it's- the new hampshire chapter of the american association of teachers of french what do what do you guys do here
1: the AATF is the national organization for teachers of French, and um, each state or region has its own chapter, so New Hampshire has its own chapter, and I was involved in AATF when I lived in Maine, and then when I came to New Hampshire, you know, wanted to check out what was going on here, and uh, as 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 it goes with a lot of these small kind of uh, volunteer organizations, they were like desperately needing uh, board members or officers, <laughs> so, Sure. I very quickly became president uh, without you know what's <laughs> the necessary part of the plan but it happened and and I'm still president now eight years later um, <laughs> but this has been like honestly one of the best things that I've done since I've been in New Hampshire because it's uh put me in connection with the community of French educators and and you know there's always a difference between what happens at the college level and what happens at the K through 12 level I mean we, sure. we, we're dealing with the same kinds of things, and yet our realities are very, very different. In higher ed, we are kind of expected to do service, not just uh, on campus, but to our discipline. And so, for me, like this is sort of part of my job. Whereas someone in high school, that's not an expectation for them. So it's it's a lot to take on something like that. So I'm very happy to do the work, and it's been um, a great way to get to know lots of fabulous French teachers in the state to uh, get a sense of sort of what you know the challenges are. And um, and we try. To offer professional development opportunities for teachers. And also, we feel the group that we have as officers now, we feel really strongly in, in providing social opportunities, networking kind of events, Ooh. because most French teachers, um, unless you're at a very big high school or college, most French teachers are the only French teacher at their school. Sure. And you really need to be around your people, right? You need, to, I mean, obviously, the internet today, you know, there's a fabulous Facebook group, the French Teachers in the US Facebook page is like, Phenomenal for getting ideas for things to teach and what's going on in the French speaking world, but, um, but you really need to talk to your colleagues right and, and to be able to share your, you know, challenges and frustrations sure. and joys and successes and all of that so sort of the thing we're most proud of that we created with the AATF New Hampshire is we started an immersion program for teachers. I don't know how long ago, maybe five years ago. So up in Colbrook, there is um, an eco-village. You might not know about this. And actually it's Bino La Montagne who had um, introduced me to this a long time ago. I have,
0: Yes, I have heard.
1: Okay. Okay. So um, they are fabulous. It's a group of Quebecois. It's a community of of Quebecois who they have one eco-village up in Quebec. And then they uh, opened a second one and they chose Colbrook. They opened up their their um place to us as a group and hosted us for we did some we made a weekend out of it where we'd have um workshops and um so they have an, an organic farm so we learned you know about the shiitake you know uh <laughs> growing and they um we would pick berries and uh they would give us a cooking lesson and we would you know have all organic foods and Um, But it's all French, all French speakers so it's really fun, um, fun place to have an event plus it's right next to the border so we would go across to Coetacook and and have dinner or go to the forest Illumina if you've never been to that it's really cool. So that's been a really, really amazing uh, event and we've run it every um, in, in September the weekend after Labor Day. Because it's like the kickoff to the school year for teachers. So oh, we're sure. trying to connect and come up with ideas and we would offer one um one workshop with something kind of teaching related. Anyway, but sadly, uh it was shut during COVID. You know, sure. there are a community of people who were just able to just shut off. you know, their doors, and I don't blame them to outsiders. And they've now just sort of changed directions a little bit. And they're not going to be just let me know that they're not going to be doing those kind of events anymore. So we're going to be looking for a new idea, because we found that offering this immersion experience of having teachers together, only French spoken for a whole weekend, but a mixture of both professional development and fun stuff. It's it's what teachers really need. Um, And it really helped us learn, you know, what's going on in schools and what people need
0: no that's very cool i know i'm gonna have to my mom's gonna be teaching french i think for the first time really Long right time. i mean maybe no it might be the first time ever she's been teaching for history for like 40 years but her school is offering french next year so she's gonna be no way a french class she's pretty hype about it so i'll have to make sure that she we'll knows. invite her yes make sure she knows about this all right so this has been awesome very fun conversation but we cannot end this conversation without the super important topic, something I know you spent a ton of time thinking about, something you wrote about in your book, and that's the future of the French language here in New Hampshire. You talked about some of the factors that may determine the future of the language in New Hampshire. Can you just talk about what your thoughts are on that?
1: OK, well, this is important to talk about, and yet it's not going to be the most optimistic part of this conversation.
0: Fair enough. Um,
1: yeah. So I mean, what's frustrating to me is that you know we, we know research shows that the best time to learn a language is as young as you can possibly get them. Right. And Mm -hmm. so um, elementary schools, ideally should be offering language. Um, There are very few public schools in New Hampshire who offer uh, a language at the elementary school level. And if they do, it's most often Spanish. Um, In my school district, we, there was one school that offered French uh, at the elementary school level and they when that teacher retired, they ended up hiring a Spanish teacher. I think because that was the, I don't, I think that they put an ad out for French or Spanish and that's what they found. So um, there's a couple of things going on. One is that um, there's sort of this message out there um, at the college level that maybe, you know, majoring in a language is not useful. And So since I've been at Plymouth State, we no longer have a teaching certification option in languages. We didn't when I arrived in 2010. Um, And so we at that time we had a French major, but there was no clear career path um, for majors. So it was one of those things that was hard. A lot of students double majored, um, but we always had pretty low numbers uh, for French majors. And and I do really think it's, you know again, although whenever someone asks me, what can you do with a French degree? I'll say you can do anything with it. I mean, it's really, it's like a plus, an asset, an any field right this is really true and i really believe it
0: more than i could do with my history degree i'll
1: tell you that um but it's you know but but given that that's like not enough for people it's not concrete enough and like let's be honest college is way too expensive in the u.s so parents are looking for the best return on investment of their degree and i get that fewer and fewer students are majoring in french and so since i have been Um, in New Hampshire, and I've been here for 12 years, the three college, the three state campuses. So UNH, Keene and Plymouth at, when I got here, all three had a French major. Now only UNH has a French major. Um, Keene was really the one that was producing the language teachers. They had a great language teacher program that is no longer happening. So we have a a real, you know, shortage of teachers. So we're not producing the teachers that we need. And then schools, you know, for the most part, we have French and Spanish at most high schools in in, in New Hampshire. But what happens is that if someone retires or leaves, um, they have if they often will will eliminate the program. And we've seen this happen multiple times since I've been here. And that's partly from a from um, you know a lack of of qualified candidates for jobs. But it's also that you know some of these schools that the demographics are going down, the numbers are going down, and so they can't schools don't feel like they can support more than one language and so sometimes they'll just have Spanish. So to me this is just such an incredible shame. I mean sure. we are a state where it doesn't get more obvious the you know what a practical application of, of French is you know I would just love for northern New England to see itself as the place where I feel like every student in the state should have the opportunity to learn French and it should be from a young age unfortunately New Hampshire does not have a graduation high school graduation requirement for language I don't know if you're aware of
0: this I did not No.
1: very few um, states in the country do not have this so I mean generally I, I went you know, to school in Massachusetts and you have to sure. have two, two years of a language to graduate from high school. This is not a requirement in New Hampshire. The Schools can, this is something that, that they can forgo. So
0: sure.
1: yeah, so that's a big problem. I've been just, you know, it, it makes me really sad to know. I, like, Teachers in general are just, ha, you know, faced with so much right now. This is a really, really difficult time to be in education at all levels. Um, and so when you don't have a support group, when you don't have a language sure. department that backs you up, when you're seen as sort of the special, which is like the extra thing, right. you know, it's always the first thing to go. In um, a lot of elementary schools, such as the one that my children attend and have attended, uh, they have Spanish in school, but it's, you know, they say that they started in kindergarten, but it's like 20 minutes a week. This is not an authentic commitment to language education. It's like sure we're introducing it; they have some exposure to it, but they're not going to become speakers of a language if you have to every week. You know, no one has retained anything from what you got last week, right? Right. So yeah. So now I'm on my soapbox, but
0: (laughs) this is is important soapbox. Yeah. So So what do we do?
1: Yeah. What do we do? So you mentioned before about this idea of like this whole population of French speakers just north of us. So I actually had had a conversation with Frank Edelblatt, our commissioner of education at Very one point. Nice. He talked yeah. about the about another problem. He talked about how in Coas County, students who are on sports teams have to travel like three hours south to go to a basketball game. You know? For those and who
0: don't know, Coas County is the extreme north of New Hampshire.
1: Exactly. And they, whereas they could be, you know, imagine a world where you could play basketball with somebody who lived just 20 minutes away, but you had to cross an international border to get there. Right. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I just, I would just love the idea of having every student have the opportunity to study French and for our schools to be connected with schools in Quebec. Right. So when I, I do a lot of hiking and I'm, whenever I'm hiking, I love to Kind of pay attention to license plates and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, I was hiking Lafayette one day, which Lafayette is the most popular one for for French Canadians for various reasons, right? Makes it's got sense. a great it's got a great name, but it's Absolutely. also right on the highway. Like you get off ninety three, and like a parking lot's right there, um, and it's a spectacular hike. But we were hiking up it, and we um, came across a school group of French Canadians, and I was like, "Whoa, where are you guys from? What are you doing here?" Whatever. and they were from Sherbrooke, yeah. and she told me that every year that middle school sends. School groups. So they send the seventh the seventh graders every year hike Lafayette, and the eighth graders hike Washington every year. That's
0: awesome. Very and I cool. said,
1: "Oh, do you do you hook up with a school while you're here and meet other kids your age?" You know, and she kind of she said, "No." She said, "Well, we don't we don't think there are that many middle schools that that study French anyway." And I just oh, wow. thought, "Whoa! Like people are here. They're coming to New Hampshire. Right. Like they know what's cool about being here, and yet we're missing these cultural opportunities, right?" Yeah. So, yeah, from having sent, you know, student college students abroad, you know, when they go to France, it's like a really cool experience and whatever. But when they go to Quebec, they end up being able to keep friends there and go back for weekends the next year. Like it's a, it's a much more sort of fruitful sure. uh, connection in, in a lot of ways. So and I don't know why that doesn't happen more often, but it, it really doesn't.
0: Yeah, I guess that, and that's big time part of my frustration is I think. We see sometimes uh, these language, especially the French language programs, cut for budget reasons. I just can't think of how short-sighted that is. Long-term potential lost because of stuff like that It frustrates me, for sure. Yeah, Yeah. no, that is kind of a bummer way (laughs) to (laughs) end. No, I mean it's really important. This has been a very, very interesting conversation. So very glad we were finally able to get you on the podcast. Again, talking to you. Dr. Kate Harrington, thank you so much for, for accepting my invitation to be on the French Canadian legs. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Jesse. It's been an honor to be on the podcast.
0: Now, our fathers look at us and sigh with despair to think that everything they love we simply do not share. But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive. Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Of us must choose how much to keep alive. Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcastgmail.com. At you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.